0: Welcome back everyone. We're finally at a new year. We're finally in 2023 and I'm excited about the future. Like I said, I had a lot of New Year's resolutions, four main things that I highlighted and one of my main goals for 2023 was to strengthen my portfolio. I called high grading my portfolio, which just means I raised the quality of it. And part of that is selling off lower quality, lower conviction holdings, and concentrating further into higher quality holdings. And I've done that in my portfolio. I've sold off three different companies in my portfolio. We'll be going through all three of the sales and seeing why I sold those companies and where I'm putting that money. And I actually bought into a brand new company. And in the process of doing analysis on my holdings and looking over the past year, I have to come clean and admit a mistake I made. I made a mistake in my analysis a year ago. I want to go through how I made this mistake and what I plan on doing in the future. So I'll be talking about that as well. Now we also have some breaking news. Bed Bath & Beyond is going bankrupt. This should really surprise no one. But the problem that I want to highlight with this company that we'll go into, I want to highlight one of the biggest abuses, one of the biggest misuses of buybacks that I've ever seen in a publicly traded company. And it's right here with the example of Bed Bath & Beyond. And then finally, we're gonna take a look at this new detailed report on Apple's mixed reality headset. They're coming out with it. Hopefully by the end of this year is the prediction but we have a lot more details on what this actually is. And as someone that's a shareholder of Apple, it's a larger position of mine, I have some opinions on this new product. So we'll be looking at that as well. So obviously we have a lot to jump into in this episode, a lot to go over and let's start off with the portfolio update and where I got things wrong. I made a mistake, like I said in my analysis, we'll get to that as well. The first one that I wanna go over is in the financial category. I sold out of J.P. Morgan, my entire stake in the company. I used to have $7,000 left in this investment and around $6,000 in gains. So J.P. Morgan has been a big winner for me. Basically, what I did with this company is I just bought it really cheap during the pandemic lows when everybody was afraid that the economy was going to go in the gutter. Banks were going to go bankrupt. There's lots of talk about crypto taking over and somehow beating out J.P. Morgan. And none of that stuff happened. Banks were completely fine. Uh, JP Morgan recovered. The price went up. The price to book right now is 1.5, which I think is a fair valuation, a reasonable valuation for JP Morgan. So I don't necessarily think this is a bad holding. In fact, I think JP Morgan does have a wide moat. But I also think this company is highly cyclical. And I don't really consider a compounder in the same way that I do other companies. It uses a ton of leverage, it doesn't really consistently grow earnings because it's very cyclical, it's very sensitive to the economy, and those are all characteristics that I'm trying to move away from. So I took my gains in this company and I redeployed it into other companies that I'll go over in a minute. But JP Morgan was the first sale. And one thing I think is worth mentioning, The companies that I sell in my portfolio are incredibly good companies because the companies that I buy are usually really, really good companies. So even the ones that I'm dumping, even the stocks that I'm selling are probably gonna do really well. In fact, I think a lot of them will probably still outperform the market. So I would not be concerned if you're still invested in JP Morgan, but that is one that I've chosen to exit because I like other positions more. The next company that I chose to sell is in the consumer category. This one is Church and Dwight, a company that I recently bought into a year ago. It's gone down just slightly. It's held up a little bit better based on my buy-in points, but I've decided to sell this company basically because of the same analysis I've done with my other holdings. I've looked over every holding and I've tried to assess both the moat and the brand strength the network effects, and the pricing power. And simply put, when I put Church & Dwight next to other companies I own, like Nike, Pepsi, Estee Lauder, even Starbucks, I considered those companies have stronger brand value and pricing power than Church & Dwight. Starbucks is raising prices while growing sales and growing customer volume. Texas Roadhouse is raising prices while growing the amount of customers that visit their store. That is pricing power. The ability to raise prices without losing customers. But Church & Dwight doesn't seem to have that to quite the same extent. This year, they've chosen to raise prices, but their overall revenue is declining, and they've had other competitors that I think have a little bit more pricing power, like Procter & Gamble. And I think the problem with Church & Dwight for me is a lot of their brands are secondary. They're the second biggest in the market share, not the first. So even though this company I think is fine, I don't see any huge problems. I just don't think it's quite as powerful as some other companies in my portfolio. So I decided to cut this position, take the small loss on it, it was a $500 loss, and move on to other holdings. And then finally, the last one that you'll notice missing in the consumer category is Target. This is a company that I've been saying for a very long period of time that I'm going to sell. It's not gonna be in my portfolio forever. When I do analysis on retailers, there's only a couple that I really wanna own. Costco is one of them, Amazon is the other. Those are the two retailers that I really like. I sold Target with a $671 gain. I had very little invested in this stock. So that was a pretty sizable gain given the amount of money that I had invested in the company. Now, Target I think is a great company. I actually think it's one of the better retailers. It'll probably do well over the next 10 years. But when I again assess the moat of companies, the goal here was to high grade the portfolio, increase the strength and durability of it. And when I assess target and the moat of it, I don't think it has any significant moat compared to other retailers like Dollar General or Walmart. In fact, I think value-oriented retailers like Walmart, Dollar General, and Costco have a stronger value proposition and a stronger moat than a company like Target. Target's a company that you can get some unique items there, but a lot of it just depends on the shopping experience because really you can buy most things at Target, at Walmart, or Costco, or Amazon. So I think that Target lacks the considerable value proposition moat that a company like Costco has. So those are the three sales, JP Morgan, Church and & Dwight, and Target. And I just want to point out that overall, you can look at the gains and losses. I'm taking gains here. I've made money with these companies over the past two years, which has been kind of difficult to do. There's been a lot of people you can look up online that have been losing money over the past two years. So I'm happy to be locking in gains and actually have made trades and different buys into companies that have done well over the past couple of years. But just as importantly as selling, we have to have a place to put the money that's hopefully better than the place we took it out of. So hopefully the buys that I'm doing are a better place for this money to be than the companies I just recently sold. And I've bought a number of different companies with this money. I further concentrated into Microsoft as this company is sold off. I put a thousand additional dollars into Microsoft. I realize the company's in the red. I realize it's going down and it looks scary right now. In my opinion, I think that Microsoft is undervalued. And I think right now, basically all of big tech is undervalued. So I'm not concerned about this $7,000 in the red. I think this is temporary. And I believe that I'll make this money back. You'll be able to follow and see over the upcoming years. I'll track it either way. But in my opinion, it's just a matter of time until the buys I'm doing today pay off. I bought a little bit more Vici. That's right. The company has come down in price. It's trading around $32 a share. I don't think it's a complete still right now, but I think it's a better value than it's been over a long period of time. And this company, I think, will continue to kick out massive dividends. I think we'll see this number grow over time. It'll zig and zag and it will wobble around from time to time. But overall, the gains are going to stack up. Vici is a company that owns a lot of Vegas real estate. Vegas is all about odds. And in this case, the odds are highly in your favor that this company will collect 100% of rents for the foreseeable future. And those rents are gonna end up in my bank account. I've bumped up my holdings in Union Pacific and Canadian Pacific a little bit. These are going down. I'm never gonna catch the falling price of a stock right at the bottom. So I'm not going to be able to time it that way. I expect these to fall down a little bit more. But I'm gradually building my position in these companies because again, I think they're duopolies, monopolistic companies with incredible pricing power, lots of efficiency going forward. And the merger with Canadian Pacific, I think will be very good for this company in the long term. Those are the companies that I've been adding to, but I also introduced a new holding to the portfolio. And this is where I can happily admit that I was wrong about something. I was wrong about MasterCard and Visa, and I've repurchased an old holding with MasterCard. I was wrong about this company a year ago. In fact, I made a video called I just sold two stocks completely. Those two stocks, as you can see, blurred out right there is Visa and MasterCard. But the reason that I was concerned about MasterCard and Visa is there's so many new companies entering into the payment sphere a year ago. If you recall, the whole fintech boom was just incredible. Every single company was coming out with different fintech products. And it made me a little bit concerned. I thought, what if there's other companies building out these big networks that are gonna upend the moat And this big duopoly that MasterCard and Visa has. And on top of all those new fintech companies, we also had reports at the exact same time that Amazon was dropping Visa as a partner, saying that they're going to use PayPal, and different concerning reports like this. And then while that was happening, there was also news that Apple and big tech were getting into payments as well. Apple Pay was taking off like a rocket So again, all these things swirling around of this fintech explosion, it just made me concerned. I really got scared with MasterCard and Visa. And getting scared with a holding is never a good thing. This is one of the difficulties in investing is not getting scared out of good companies. In fact, Peter Lynch once famously said the real key to making money in stocks is to not get scared out of them. And that is exactly what I did. I got scared out of these two companies. Now what's happened over the past year with this fintech explosion and all the crypto and everything that was supposed to upend the entire US financial system put to rest these companies of MasterCard and Visa that hold this duopoly. Well, we can see what happened. All of these disruptive companies, we can name PayPal for example. This company is completely crushed. It's down 66% from its high. The usership has slowed for it and it hasn't threatened Visa or MasterCard really at all. Amazon quickly sorted things out and still continues to work with MasterCard and Visa. And it's true that big tech is moving into FinTech and they're building out things like Apple Pay But Apple Pay uses MasterCard and Visa as part of their network. In fact, most of the transactions rely on their existing networks. Bitcoin that was supposed to upend the U.S. financial system is down 61%. There's continually people moving out of exchanges and moving the cold storage and selling out of crypto. And meanwhile, we can look at what's happening with MasterCard and Visa. Over the past year, Visa's down 3%. A little volatility with the stock, but nothing concerning. The transactions for the business have hit record highs. The revenue has hit record highs of $7.8 billion in a single quarter. And we can say the same thing about MasterCard. Their duopoly and share of the market, MasterCard is down 4%, nearly identical performance to Visa. And likewise, the revenues have hit record highs as more and more people are using their network every single day than a year ago. So I concluded that my initial concerns for Visa and MasterCard were largely unfounded, and unless I see some real compelling data show up in the numbers, I plan on buying back into these companies and really owning them as larger positions. Because outside of these troubling predictions of their duopoly being broken up, if you actually look at the numbers for these companies, they are clearly a compounder. So I decided to buy back in. The reason that I chose MasterCard over Visa was basically the flip of a coin I had to choose one. It's kind of like choosing one railroad over another. I think they're all good options. I had a slight nuanced preference for MasterCard because I like some of the deals they're doing with companies like Apple. But really, I would be just as fine owning Visa, and I may have Visa back into the portfolio someday. And in terms of buying back in, I'm glad that in this case... My mistake on MasterCard was not a costly mistake because the company's down a couple percentages from where I sold it. So I was able to buy back in without this company racing away. That's all the trades that I did. I basically sold out of three companies and brought back MasterCard and I've upped my stake and concentration into what I consider to be the higher quality compounders in my portfolio. One thing that I'll mention is even though this seems like a lot of trades, it's not a lot of capital compared to my portfolio. The total turnover from this this trade going on here is around 6% of the portfolio. So this isn't any huge, massive difference. I've moved around 6% of my portfolio positions out of those three companies into some different ones. And hopefully my portfolio will be stronger as a result. Now moving on, I want to jump into this Bed Bath & Beyond news because I think it's it's relevant to investors to be aware of both the good uses of capital allocation and the bad uses of capital allocation. Basically, an executive sits in the role of being an investor on your behalf. If I invest money in a company like Amazon, for instance, let's bring up Amazon here. We can look at it on Qualtrics and we can see that this company makes a lot of different investments. When I invest in Amazon, I'm handing over capital of mine and I'm saying, hey, Andy Jassy and the executive team at Amazon, you make investments with capital on my behalf. I'm giving you investments and you can now invest on my behalf. So you have to have confidence in the executive team to make good investments on your behalf that are going to have a high return on investment. And that's a little bit of your judgment. That makes it so that you have a little bit of risk with any investment. That is called the agency risk of the executives. Now, some businesses are less risky than others because they do very, minimal reinvestment. They basically just run their core business and do nothing else. And those ones are very predictable. But with companies like Amazon, it's a little bit more risky. They're making a lot of different investments and you have to have some level of faith or some level of research that the management is gonna make smart investments with your money. Now we bring up a counterexample here, the company Bed Bath & Beyond. And this is a company that I think has made dramatic misallocations with their investments. And this is a huge risk for investors. Beyond the fact that the retail business is difficult and I I think it's highly competitive and I would avoid investing in a lot of these companies, I think there's going to be swaths of them going bankrupt. I think Macy's will. I think Dillard's will. I think some of the private companies like Staples will. I think a lot of retailers that we know about are going to go bankrupt over the next 10 years. And it was only really a matter of time with Bed Bath & Beyond. But the actions that these executives took, I think are not only bad capital allocation, I would consider it financial malpractice. Now let me go over the illustration of why I think this company was so egregiously mismanaged and how investors can avoid this in the future. First of all, we have the business's top line. It's been going down for well over six years now, and it's going down at an aggressive clip. So this is a company that is getting desperate. It doesn't really know what to do. They're having to come up with all these different strategies to to try to stabilize their revenue because they're losing market share quickly. That's not their only problem though. They have problems with cash flows. It should have been apparent to this company, Bed Bath & Beyond, that their cash flows were declining over the past five years. And especially in 2019, that's when it really became apparent that they're having cash flow issues. Now we look at the balance sheet of the company, what is this company doing? They're minimizing their cash balance. Cash balance since 2020 has gone down dramatically to just hundred million dollars from 1.4 billion. So they're very low on cash. Their debt has spiked back up as they're taking out emergency debt. This debt is getting more expensive as S&P Global has recently just labeled it as lower credit. So now their cost of capital is increasing. And meanwhile, they still have these pricey capital leases because they are a retail business. So they're a heavily indebted company that has far more long-term debt than cash. On top of that, they have the ongoing operating expense of capital leases. And what is management doing during this dire, desperate time in their business? Well, what they're doing is buybacks. That's what this company has been doing for the past decade without any hiccup since 2013 they knew that their business was in decline. Instead of really working to fix the business, instead of bolstering a huge cash pile for rainy day ahead, they reduced the shares outstanding. In fact, they reduced it at an aggressive clip, buying back 21% of their shares outstanding in just the past year. In 2019, when it became clear that their free cash flows were going down dramatically, they halted the buyback program for a couple of quarters and then they resumed it. Buying back shares all through 2020 And in 2021, they're buying back their own stock using their precious cash balance that could save them from bankruptcy to buy back their own shares in hopes to boost the stock price. Their efforts to boost the stock price didn't even work. It's down 24% just today. So all that money that they bought back was completely wasted, and the investors got burned on that as well. And again, I just wanted to go over this because I think it highlights a key risk for the stocks you're invested in. That is the capital allocators of the company, which are the executives. They're in control of doing sound investments. And if you see a company doing buybacks while taking on massive amounts of debts, while the company's fundamentals are eroding, that is a clear sign that the company's very much focused on the short term and not on the long term strength of the company. Now, the next piece of news that I thought was very interesting and relevant is. Apple's new mixed reality headset. We've heard rumors of this for a long period of time, but it seems like it's getting closer and closer. As we know, Apple rigorously tests all of its devices before releasing. I won't name any names, but there's a lot of other tech companies that throw products out in the market and they use their customers as the test dummies for it. This is not the case with Apple. So before they release something, they have to have a good idea that it's very rigorously tested and it's going to have a very good outcome for the general audience. Now, we do have some details about Apple's mixed reality headsets. First of all, the looks of it. They say the headset resembles a pair of ski goggles and will use an array of cameras to allow people to experience both augmented and virtual reality. So you can do it both ways, It's going to look like ski goggles. That doesn't really give us a lot of information there. But we do get more specifics into how this works. They say the headset will use motors that automatically adjust its lenses, ensuring that the wearer has the best possible viewing experience. A physical dial on the headset will allow users to quickly toggle between complete immersion in VR and the ability to see their surroundings. And Apple has quietly included technology in the latest version of its AirPod Pros intended to make them work better with the headset. And there it is. There's the moat of Apple, always looking to integrate their existing technology and their existing ecosystem into every new product. They're not just going to integrate it with the AirPods. It'll be integrated with the iPhone. It'll be integrated with the iPad and with Apple TV Plus and with everything. All of this is going to work seamlessly together. That's the way Apple does everything. They say as of last year, the headset used an extended battery pack tethered by a cable as opposed to a battery integrated into the headband. The design choice has been controversial among Apple's engineers, given the company's preference for cable-free designs. This is something that I can see Apple getting made fun of. Having a cord go down from the headset to your waist and then having a battery pack there is basically like a fanny pack. So you have a fanny pack battery, which is not the most flattering or seamless design. And Apple being known for the design... I think this could cause a little bit of a stir, but you have to consider the options here. Batteries are heavy. Having them sit on your head for an extended period of time causes fatigue on your shoulders and your neck. So they're making judgment calls here, and at some point there has to be a little bit of give and take. You have to sacrifice some design elements to make the product actually work and be feasible. In this case, I think if you have a heavy battery, I'd rather have that sitting on my waist than sitting on my head. They say Apple appears to be inching closer to the launch of the product. As of early last year, Taiwanese manufacturer Pegatron has assembled a headset outside of Shanghai. It passed multiple prototype stages and entered production milestone known as the Engineering Validation Test. This is where they make thousands of the product to see if it's suitable for mass production. Now, despite reaching that stage, Apple could still scrap elements of the design, and the headset altogether. Again, they're gonna wanna come out with a good product. Apple doesn't wanna sacrifice its reputation by pre-releasing a product before it's ready for prime time. This thing is gonna be expensive. All the estimates I've seen, and even the most current estimates, are that it's gonna be around $3,000 or more. And it just seems like there's no other way to price it lower. With the technology it has, the sensors it has, the cost of making this is gonna be much higher than an iPhone or much higher than their other devices. And that price range does price out most people, but it will still be a nice range for enthusiasts or people that really are interested in VR and mixed R headset. And I think the route this will take is it will simply get cheaper over time. It'll start off super premium and they'll come out with cheaper models over time. The display and optics of this device, I think, are the most compelling part of it. And I think is what's going to set this above and beyond what Meta's doing. I... I fully believe, when I look at the differences between Apple as a company and Meta, I think that Apple has a much better engineering, design, and hardware team than Meta. Meta has a better social engineering team, Apple has a better hardware engineering team. So when I look at the differences between their designs and what they're talking about here, this one seems like a massive step ahead of the Oculus. They say the display for each eye has a resolution of 4K. Combined, they form an 8K image. That's four times the pixels of an ultra high-definition TV. The displays, which are manufactured by Sony, will be among the first to use technology known as Micron OLED. That means the displays are fabricated directly on a silicone wafer instead of on glass, allowing it to be extra tiny and thin, but still contain a high density of pixels. Sounds pretty impressive. When the user puts on the headset, it will automatically adjust the lenses using small motors so that they match the user's interpupillary distance, the space between the user's pupils, which varies from person to person. That's important because your eyes need to be perfectly aligned with the small displays inside the headset to give you the largest observable area and field of view. I also think, something that they don't mention here, is I think the fact that many headsets are not perfectly aligned with your face and eyes, I think that's what causes people to have nausea and people to get dizzy when they use headsets. And that's a constant complaint for people using VR headsets. So if they can solve that problem where people don't get dizzy or don't get nauseous using these, I think it dramatically broadens the use case. And Apple's headset will also allow people who wear glasses to magnetically clip in custom prescription lenses. So they've solved that issue as well. It uses a number of processors, but the most notable one is called Statin. It's the brains of the headset. It's more powerful than the M2 chip, and it's custom made for this headset. They say in terms of design, it's gonna be composed of aluminum and glass while also using carbon fiber to reduce the size and weight, making it lighter and thinner than the MetaQuest Pro. So it'll be more powerful, have better lenses, and be lighter and thinner. As an Apple shareholder, I like what I'm reading so far. And then finally, in terms of content, Apple has a significant advantage here over competitors like Meta as well, because they have 30 million developers actively building apps on the Apple App Store. Apple is a money-making machine for these developers. They make a fortune, even with the Apple tax included in that. So they're going to be happy to develop on a new Apple device and try to be first to market, get that first movers advantage on the new apps. Apple may also be planning virtual or mixed reality experiences around live sports. They've been buying up a lot of sports rights. They say the New York Times also reported in June that Apple is working with Hollywood producers to make content for the headset that will tie into its Apple TV Plus shows. So there they're tying in their ecosystem with Apple TV Plus. It's going to somehow connect with the headset as well. This is where everything ties together. With this headset, it's going to tie into Apple TV+. Plus. It'll tie into their App Store. It'll tie into even the AirPods. That's what they're using for audio for the headset. Probably the AirPod Pros. Everything ties back into the Apple ecosystem. Now, I've said this many times before. I'm an Apple fanboy. I like basically every product this company comes out with. Sometimes they do come out with flops, though. I'll admit it. And I think the mixed reality headset is, it's a risky one. I don't think this one is like the next iPhone that just has some small iterations and has very low risk of execution. I consider this to be a very high execution risk release for Apple. Probably one of the more risky ones over the past decade, because there's just so much tech and so much to consider with a VR headset. I don't think it's been going quite as well for meta i think they've had struggles we've had vr headsets slow down in sales over the past year so apple really needs to nail this and i think they only get one shot to make a first impression so there is some execution risk but in my opinion even though the stock is trading down a little bit right now this vr headset is not part of my investment thesis for apple this company generates so much cash flow even without this headset that i think it would be completely fine so if they are able to have another success another big premium item to add to their Apple ecosystem of products, I think that's all the better. So we'll see what happens. I'm personally excited about it. I think Apple has good odds of making this work, but it's not something core to my thesis. Now that's all for this update. I hope you enjoyed the show and I'll see you in the next one.